This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Gina. And we're the hosts of Job Search Stories by Indeed, a podcast where we talk about the hardest parts of the job search. This is another hot topic, the job application abyss. A horrible place to be. Doing a resume. I like to put off forever. Do start working on it now. I love that you said the trickiest questions are the ones you don't prepare for. An interview really is a high pressure situation. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or come watch it on Indeed's YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. And it's 10.30 at night. We're recording at a slightly unusual time, aren't we, Steph? Yeah, we are because it's been a big day. Um, a big day that we're going to talk about for the first half of the show, which is, of course, the autumn statement, which we've both been covering today. So, yeah, we're going to dedicate the first half of the show to that. Then I really want to talk about what's going, what's been going on with OpenAI. This has had us both gripped, Robert, hasn't it? Um, Sam Altman and the, the firing, then the rehiring and what's going on in AI. The and best why. corporate, corporate yeah. soap opera for years. Yes. Uh, we'll also talk about, off the back of us being asked about influencers and what influence they actually have, we're also going to talk about when things go wrong and in particular Kanye West and his uh, downfall and uh, with Adidas and the money and where it all went wrong there. And then we'll take your questions. But should we go straight into the autumn statement then? Because I know you spent a bit of time today with the Chancellor and the Shadow Chancellor. So give us your take on it. Yeah, so it's been one of those days where I've been completely immersed in this big parliamentary event, the autumn statement. I've been, I've actually interviewed the Chancellor, I've interviewed the Shadow Chancellor. And he, the Chancellor, says this is a budget to improve the growth potential of the UK economy. So one of the things we're going to talk about is whether he's right that this has done something fundamental to get the growth rate up. There's also been a huge tax giveaway to business, £11 billion a year, with the making permanent of an existing system whereby they can claim back the cost of big investments against their tax. And there's also £8 billion handed out to employees through a two percentage point reduction in national insurance. This is a tax break for people in work. If you're retired, I'm afraid you don't benefit from that. If you're a landlord, you don't benefit from that. It's a way to stimulate the jobs market to an extent. What, however, is startling against these measures, which are supposed to make us better off, is the official forecaster is saying that growth this year and next will be, I don't know, around half a percent a year, which is next to nothing. You know, that's bumping along the bottom. 
right? That is not any significant increase in, in prosperity. And the Office of Budget Responsibility has downgraded what it feels is the sustainable, what it says is the sustainable growth rate, the rate at which the UK economy can grow without generating inflation from 1.8% to 1.6%. And that is half the rate that we used to grow before the financial crisis of 2008. So this is a budget that is supposed to make us better off, but it's certainly in the short to medium term, we're not going to feel a lot better off. Yeah. And also suggesting that inflation is probably going to fall slower than we thought as well. Going to be with us at a higher rate for another year. And the associated with that, therefore, interest rates going to be higher for longer. Um, the thing I know I said to you as well before this statement came out, I was saying I was going to be, because, you know, I'm particularly interested in kind of the regional disparity. And as someone who lives up in the up in the northeast um, and, you know, and spends a lot of time in the regions around the country, I was particularly wondering what was going to be said about levelling up. And there was so little compared to what you'd normally get, you know, when Boris was in power, it was either the first or second thing that was talked about. And this was much further down the pecking order. And, you know, unless you live in Hull, if you live in Hull, there's been, you know, lots of good news there in terms of levelling up. But um, I, I was quite surprised about that. They did extend the tax breaks. They doubled the length of time from five years to 10 years for the tax breaks that go to free ports and investment zones. And they also announced a few more investment zones. But you're absolutely Right, you know that Boris Johnson's big thing of leveling up. I mean, I mean, we should be clear about this. He made a big noise about it. He didn't do all that much. But you're right that it has obviously come down the agenda for the Sunak Hunt regime. Yeah, and that on top of the kind of real terms public spending cuts, I think is going to hit the poor regions particularly hard. And that's one of my big concerns in all of this. Is what happens next. You're absolutely right about that. And I'm glad you mentioned public spending because actually the thing I suppose that I was most fixated on today is what economists would call money illusion. Now, the reason he's been able, this is the Chancellor, to do those big tax giveaways is because on the official figures, he's got a bigger surplus than he expected in five years time. And that gave him the comfort to say that I can give away some money. But, you know, in my view, and in the view of a lot of credible economists, that surplus is it's illusory. Why do I say it's not real? It's because of the way that inflation acts on different parts of the economy. So we've been living through a period of high inflation. And when there's a period of high inflation, incomes go up, profits go up, which means tax revenues rise because basically the tax we all pay on higher income goes up. So he's had a windfall as a result of inflation in the form of higher tax revenues, right? And that is why he's able to give a bit of it back to us in the form of a tax cut, right? But the bit that he's conveniently ignored is that when inflation goes up, it also puts up all of our costs. It puts up our costs if we're just running a household. But of course, it also puts up the cost of running a hospital or running a school or running the police force. And so the bit that is ignored is that the real inflation-adjusted resources of vital public services have been squeezed. And according to the Office for Budget Responsibility, they have been squeezed to the tune of £19 billion. Right. And what he hasn't done is 
found any money to make good that squeeze. Okay, so what that means is that anybody who wins the next election is, uh, you know, unless something miraculous happens between now and the next election, they're going to inherit a real, well, we've already got a crisis in many of our public services and hospitals, for example, but it's going to be even worse. Okay, so if he had put that 19 billion that's missing back into public services, he would have had no surplus whatsoever. Right. So it's an illusion that he's got this surplus. It's, it is this this money illusion. And my concern is that these are certainly when it comes to national insurance, it's a tax cut that is obviously politically important to him because he's got all these backbenchers saying they want tax cuts. And indeed, given the extent to which this is a government that has put up the tax burden, put up our taxes massively over the, over the last few years. And we shouldn't forget that even with the tax cuts he's announced today, the tax burden over the coming few years will rise to its highest level since the Second World War. He's giving a bit of that back. But the argument would be, because of the impact of inflation on public services, he hasn't even got the 8 billion really in, in if he was being prudent to, you know to give that money back to us in terms of the national insurance cut oh smoke and mirrors shall we talk about the welfare reform stuff as well because obviously that's where Jeremy Hunt's big thing is to try and get more people back into work in the hope that that will also help the economy and they've got some quite um, quite punchy reforms in all of this haven't they I mean I'll start with the good news on it obviously the good news for people in the welfare system is that benefits are going to rise by 6.7 percent. Which was the inflation rate in September and there was a lot of debate yes. about whether or not they'd use the lower October figure. So he has done the, 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 the traditional thing of awarding people the September rate. We should point out though, you're right that people will be relieved that they've got the higher rate. Food inflation is still 10%, right? Yeah. And if you're in receipt of universal credit, you're going to be on a low income and that 10% rise in food income will possibly be closer to your own experience of inflation than the headline rate of 6.7%. You're not going to be feel massively better off as a result of that universal credit increase. And on top of that, of not feeling better off, you're also going to be feeling a lot of pressure to get back into work as well. And there's lots of uh, people raging about these sanctions that have uh, been brought in for those who aren't, as the government sees it, doing enough to find a job. So if you're one of those people, the government thinks could get a job and you don't look for work for a six-month period, you'll lose your, your benefits if you're on them. And if you're looking but don't get a job in an 18-month period, you'll have to do work experience. Now, this is, I mean, it's right to try and get people into work, isn't it, who don't work. And and on the flip side of this, they're saying they want to make it easier to get people to back into work. So, you know, they're calling this, aren't they, the chance to work guarantee where they reckon loads of people on benefits want to work, but either can't find the work or it makes no financial sense for them to work because benefits are better or not much different than what they learn by going to work. So, you know, they want to bring in more of a financial incentive there. So for example, in the future, if you're you're on universal credit because you're on, you know, long-term sick or you're disabled or whatever, and you get a job, you can keep the first £404 of that money that you earn without it affecting your welfare payment. So there's that financial incentive there, which should help. You know, I know people on benefits who won't come off benefits because they see no financial benefit in coming off it and working. I mean, just on that for a second before we move on to the disability side of all of this. I mean, I think the important test of all of this will always be, you know, are the 
the job's actually there. And if you can't yeah. get a job, is the work experience, is the training worth having? So in the end, these sorts of policies can only be judged in terms of the quality of what's being offered to people. You know, there's no question in my mind that the majority of people, if they can get a, you know, a fulfilling job, will want to do it. And I think we've got to be slightly careful to assume that in this country, we've got a very significant sort of work shy culture, because I just don't think there is the evidence there for that. I completely understand why at a time when there are chronic labor shortages all over the place, you have a government that wants to, to you know, increase the supply of people into the workforce, particularly since, you know, tomorrow we're going to get, you know, immigration figures. And, you know, we're likely to see again figures showing very significant um, numbers coming into this country for work. And, you know, plainly any government would rather see indigenous people getting those jobs on higher wages than having to rely on outsiders. But I do think one's got to be slightly careful because there are some parts of the country where unfortunately the quality of employment just isn't there. This is part of your levelling up thing. You know, what you want to see is an industrial policy that me- that means that the jobs are there for people to do. Yeah, because another element to this which, which worries me is this whole overhaul of how people are going to be assessed in terms of their ability to work. And this is the ill health issue, isn't it? Which is really yeah. one of the most controversial aspects of, of that. Yeah, because what they're saying is as things stand, there are too many people written off from working when they shouldn't be so that the government says something like you're three times more likely now to be written off work than you would have been a decade ago and what the government is saying is actually that shouldn't be the case for some physical and mental illnesses because actually the world of work has changed so there's more flexibility now there's you know the the chance to work from home in a way we haven't seen before and that more disabled and long-term sick people shouldn't be written off work and instead should be supported to find work that fits their needs. But that comes back to your point, Robert, which is, but what if those jobs aren't out there? So there's, there was a charity today who was obviously raging about this, saying that only one in 10 jobs advertised have a working from home element to it. So you can't suddenly make these jobs appear. You can't make these jobs appear. And then there's also the important question about the stigma attached to ill health. I mean, let's be absolutely clear. One of the reasons why the numbers of people, you know, who are unable to work because of ill health is because of COVID. This is a real thing. And vastly more people are genuinely, both for physical reasons, long COVID and psychological reasons, the terrible psychological toll that COVID took, you know, they are genuinely unwell. And I think that if if as a society, one tries to minimise that, that is not a humane way to go. Now, the, the, the Chancellor has set, I mean, he insists that he does not want to stigmatise these people. I asked him this directly in an interview I did with him today for my ITV programme. He insists he's not doing that. But the numbers in terms of the reduction he wants to see in terms of people essentially signing on to the benefit which says you don't have to look for work at all at the moment there are roughly a hundred thousand people a year signing up or being given by gps a sick note which allows them to exit from the uh, labor force completely uh, he wants to see that number reduced by two-thirds right? From 100,000 to something over 30,000. Now that's a massive reduction. And I am, you know, you've got to be anxious that some of that 60 to 70,000 people will be in some distress as a result of it. What they will feel is that they're being coerced. Which will make their mental health and possibly physical health 
even worse. So then it will become a bigger problem for all of us. But this issue of labour supply is obviously a fundamental one. And just one final point on this. I mean, we t- I was talking about the migration figures that are coming out tomorrow. One of the most startling things, again, that the official forecaster came up with today in the OBR, we've talked a little bit in the past about the fact that GDP has recovered to its pre-pandemic level. GDP per head is still below its pre-pandemic level. So that is national income divided by the number of people in the country. That's because migration has been high. And that's because we haven't got enough people in this country able to do the jobs that need to be done. That is not the sign of a healthy economy. I absolutely take the view that that shows that our education system is failing, that our system of, you know, essentially making sure jobs are in the right places is failing. You know, there is a huge amount of work to do here. And actually, again, one of the things that was really quite striking talking to, and maybe this is a more positive thing, talking to Jeremy Hunt and to Rachel Reeves, they did in the end accept there are no quick fixes for these things, right? When you have a growth problem like the UK's growth problem, you have to set a course and you have to stick to it. One of the things that is really remarkable is that the Chancellor's really quite expensive measures today will not, and he admits this, have an impact, a significant impact on business investment or growth for the best part of a decade. Now, I slightly say hats off to them for taking steps that will take a decade. And the truth is, if you want to improve the structure of economy, it is the work of years. In a sense, we've got to have a more honest debate about this. And simply a pre-election bung is neither here nor there. Yeah, because then that that all is contradicted then, isn't it? When you then hear about, you know, the national insurance cut, because then you just think, well, that is a political point to help you with the election next year and not a long-term view on, on what should happen. Well, unless you take the Tory view that lower taxes are good for the growth potential over the long term, I would point out, despite the fact that the tax burden in the UK is rising to a post-war record, tax burden in the UK is still lower than in many European countries that are significantly richer per head than we are. Yeah. And on that note, shall we uh, move on? I'm sure loads of people will have questions about what's in the statement as well. I know, for example, we were talking ahead of time about ISIS and what might happen there, and there wasn't a big overhaul of the ISIS system. So if you've got any questions on it, just to remind you, the email is restismoney at gmail.com or send them in on our social media. The rest is money or find us there. Right. I think at this point we should probably go to a break. Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Gina. And we're the hosts of Job Search Stories by Indeed, a podcast where we talk about the hardest parts of the job search. This is another hot topic, the job application abyss. A horrible place to be. Doing a resume. I like to put off forever. Do start working on it now. I love that you said the trickiest questions are the ones you don't prepare for. An interview really is a high pressure situation. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or come watch it on Indeed's YouTube channel. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. 
Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So, shall we talk about what's been going on at OpenAI? Oh my God, the soap opera of the moment. Incredible. (laughs) It is. Just in the space of a few days, it's been really hard to even keep up with everything going on. So I'm going to quickly give you a summary of of what's been happening. And then, Robert, we'll we'll talk about why. This is like the plot of a drama, isn't it? And it centers around a guy called Sam Altman. He's a 38-year-old tech entrepreneur, you know, who's helped set up OpenAI. And you'll know them for creating the chat GPT bot. And he's a very high-profile figure in the world of AI. On Friday, the board suddenly sacked him. And this kind of came out of, of no where didn't it and we'll talk about why that happened in a moment but then this kicked off a series of really dramatic events because then Microsoft who were one of the biggest investors in OpenAI offered Sam and his co-founder Greg Brockman a job in-house to help them run the uh, AI team there and then there was you know talk of all the billions of pounds that was going to be spent on that and at the same time all the staff who were left in OpenAI were kicking off about the fact that Sam and, and Greg were essentially getting the boot. So they were venting their anger. They were signed this letter saying that the board needed to go. And now, in another turn of events, Sam Altman and Greg are going back to run OpenAI with a different board. Only one person who was previously on the board is is staying on it. And then there's a, a new gang has formed to run OpenAI now with Sam back at the helm of it. But honestly, this has been, and this, this has all happened in just the space of a, of a couple of days. I can't imagine uh, what their weekends have been like. And they're, you know, they've probably got no charge left on their phones either from all the conversations that must have been happening. But Robert, do you want to talk about why here? And, and, and what's important is the kind of setup of OpenAI, isn't it? It is. And actually the why is also like something out of some amazing science fiction movie. Um, But the thing that everybody has to sort of understand about the structure of this company is it was unusual, to put it mildly. There was an operating company backed by Microsoft in particular, which is, you know, one of the world's biggest, most powerful companies, you know, one of the big seven huge digital companies, actually it's been driving sort of stock market performance for months and years. And, you know, that operating company run by Sam Altman was all about trying to commercialize artificial intelligence. And we've been talking about the economic and commercial significance of artificial intelligence week after week. But we've also been talking about the risks and the threats of artificial intelligence. And as you know, the biggest risk of all that scientists think is a genuine risk, including scientists now working for the British Prime Minister, that is that, you know, artificial intelligence reaches this state of what's called artificial general intelligence. It becomes a sort of all-powerful life form. And the consensus is that will happen at some point. And so the structure of OpenAI included a board whose job was to protect the world from a sort of malevolent AI at the point that artificial intelligence becomes effectively this godlike life form. And in the statutes of this business, it said that at the moment that the artificial intelligence being developed by this business becomes artificial general intelligence, at that point, the commercial backers have no rights over it, 
and it reverts to the control solely of this board, right? And what the board alleged against Sam Altman, in effect, was that he as chief executive was not keeping them enough informed about the development of AI such that they didn't feel that they were in a position, in effect, to exercise their responsibilities, exercise their responsibilities to say at a particular moment, okay, guys, you may have invested billions in AI, but none of what has now been created, this super intelligence, you know, you can have no role, uh, no use of any of that anymore. And we're going to decide how to deploy this to protect the world or even possibly to save the world. But the fundamental point being that this non-profit for the benefit of mankind function was utterly at loggerheads with obviously the imperative of a huge business like Microsoft to exploit AI for the benefit of their business and their shareholders. As I say, it was like something out of out of sci-fi. Like a Marvel movie, isn't it? It's like, honestly, reads like it sounds like you're reading the blurb of a Marvel movie, doesn't it? Protecting the world from this new life form of artificial general intelligence. And there's one other point that I was just going to uh, sort of mention. Do, do you remember when we were talking about Bankman Freed yeah. and the disaster at FTX? Do you remember when we had a, also a long conversation about Elon Musk and the extraordinary changes at X and at all of his businesses, this movement we keep referring to the effective altruists. And this is this movement that actually came out of Oxford, but then sort of permeated various Ivy League colleges in America and Silicon Valley, which is this pseudo quasi philosophical movement, which is all about in the end, encouraging people, really bright young people, to make the maximum amount of money possible and then deploy that money to save the world or to protect the world from existential risks. And one of the charges about this board, the board that sacked Altman, is that they were somehow influenced by in the grip of this effective altruist philosophy. And that's why they were so obsessed with this idea of this malevolent super being wiping out the world. And there are people, I mean, I, you know, on Friday night, okay, shows you how sad I am when the news about Sam Altman broke. I'm on WhatsApp and, you know, sort of basically communicating with various sort of techies all over the world, people immersed in this stuff. And they're all basically coming up with these theories about how the effective altruists, who they see as this sinister, sort of semi-Masonic movement, uh, sort of, you know, taking control of AI and what it all means. It is literally a, a sci-fi movie in real time, in real life. Incredible. It's like effective altruism gives them the kind of God complex, though, isn't it? It's like then they decide what good and bad is for the greater good. Because like you mentioned, Sam Bankman-Fried, he was all about, you know, sustainability and saving animals and pumping loads of money into charities for that. But yet he was willing to defraud investors to do that. And similarly, these guys running this board, and what's fascinating about this, there's only six people on the board, aren't they? And two of them were Sam and Greg. So there was only four others. Uh, and, you know, and it was an, there was an academic who is a sort of expert in the sort of risks of, of AI. And, you know, one of the things that also the sort of investor community were complaining to me about is they felt that, you know, for a business with this kind of commercial potential, they just didn't have the right people at that kind of level. But, you know, there will now be a debate because the board has been changed. 
and we've got much more commercial people on now. Presumably, we'll hear from you know the board members who appear to have been thrown off a bit more about what was really on their minds here, the detail of it. So I don't think we're we're at the end of it. But I do think what's interesting here is that big money does appear in the end to have won. The, the weight of the financial clout of Microsoft does appear to have won because we've got a new board. And interestingly, you know, there's a guy from Salesforce who's definitely a very commercial guy who's now seems to be the senior figure on the new on And the Larry new board. Summers as well. The US US Treasury Secretary, which is an interesting appointment. I have questions, though. You know, you can understand how altruism can work from a personal point of view, like in terms of what you can do to do things for charity, donate to charity. But I can't get my head around how it can work on a commercial level when you have investors, because investors are not putting money in to save the world, are they? They're putting in money to make money back. So therefore, the commercial interests will won't they always overtake? So this is why this is such an important story, in my view, which is if, like me, you take the view that this is a proper industrial revolution, that this is going to up the growth rate actually of the world and and including the UK, that there are both significant risks for employees because some people will lose their jobs, some people's pay will be flattened. Uh, This is in a moment where governments have to step in and help people both through the welfare system and through retraining. So this is a massive, massive, massive industrial economic deal. But unlike previous industrial revolutions, and I genuinely believe this, we are also creating a life form and it all, you know, it does have implications of a really profound philosophical sort, you know, implications that will challenge us to think about who we are. We think we're the only intelligent life on this planet. Well, we are not that far away from creating something that is not only an intelligent life, but is infinitely more powerful in terms of its knowledge than any human that's ever existed. It's hard to imagine that, though. Like, in reality, what does that look like? Is that, you know, is that robots doing everything? Is it robots teaching our kids? Is it robots doing all the job it's so hard to picture what that looks like well it might be some of that but those feel to me like much narrower applications and it is you know the the thing that is sort of nuts about this is we have seen all this stuff in movies it's about the super brain in the computer anyway the the point one is making is the, the moment when this super brain decides to wipe out humanity or decides not to wipe out humanity may not be tomorrow okay but the fact that the british prime minister Let's be absolutely clear about this. Takes this risk seriously, hosts an entire international summit to protect us from this risk, shows how this is a very different industrial revolution from any that we have lived through. And so the really interesting question for me, because I mean it's not the only, you know, cutting edge firm in this area, but the really interesting question for me is what this saga shows about whether we do have the protections in place to reassure us that that high impact, some would say it's a low probability, but that really high impact, low probability risk is being contained. And, you know, we won't know that for a few days. But I suspect that what we've seen here is the triumph of money over the kind of protections one wants to put in place. And so the world may not be a safer place after this debacle. Yes. And then the whole effective altruism point just flies out the window doesn't it now look we've got an enormous amount to get through it's not exactly the sublime to the ridiculous but we've got a slight 
change of subject, haven't we? What, what's been on your mind in the in the sportswear arena? Yeah, so, I mean, we were talking last week, weren't we, on the podcast about how the influencer world works, you know, how much they make and how they actually do it. And I just want to take time this week to kind of look at it in a bit more detail and in particular, what it can actually cost a company when the influencer turns bad. So just to remind you on how important influencing is, um, the global influencer marketing market has more than doubled uh, since 2019. It's estimated to be worth over $20 billion and it's way more sophisticated than it used to be as well. So in the past, it would be somebody who is essentially famous for something where, you know, whether it's they're a famous musician, famous sports star or whatever, would be paid to support a brand, post social media posts and content about them. But now it's a lot more sophisticated because now when brands are deciding who to work with, they're looking at every single metric. There, you know, there's agreements made on what time of day the person will post, what the caption is, whether it's boosted or not. And every single thing has a monetary worth. And it can be anything between a thousand pounds they're paying an influencer up to a million pounds just for one post with all of these different metrics analyzed. And, you know, there's loads of examples of people who are influencers, like the obvious ones, like your Ronaldo's, who's got over, you know, 500 million followers, Beyonce, 300 million followers. But then you get the more quirky ones as well, who you might have seen, who are like kind of best described as ordinary people who post stuff about their lives and then loads of people get into it and then they become massive. Like I've interviewed loads of them now, like Pool Guy is a guy who literally just cleans pools for a living and he kept putting out these little videos and then all of a sudden people came obsessed with you know seeing other people's swimming pools and uh, then he started being paid by brands and he's got you know millions of followers camping granddad was another one I interviewed last week this guy in his 70s who goes around camping with his dog how much is camping granddad making you well he gets quite a lot from brands just to use certain products when he's camping so it's that kind of product placement stuff and again he's getting thousands of pounds now from that and some of us i have to say some of us you know in effect do this for nothing as it were i noticed the other day so as you may have noticed i wear this is not a completely unthought through transition i wear on television pretty much all the time adidas gazelles and there was quite a long piece in the Times, believe it or not, about how people like me, including me, are somehow making Adidas Gazelles fashionable again. But I'm doing it because I happen to like the shoes. Unfortunately, or maybe maybe actually many people out there would say it keeps me purer of, of heart and mind. Um, I don't get paid for wearing Adidas Gazelles. Yeah, but that's the thing. There might come a point where, you know, they might come to you and say, right, Robert's really authentic with this, so therefore we want to kind of boost it a bit. Sadly, under under the news and under Ofcom's rules, I would have to t- say that's very sweet of you, but sadly I cannot. But I'll take wear your them money. if anyone wants to pay me. <laughs> um, no, but this all is connected. The reason I'm, I'm just giving you the background here, just because the problem is there's so many influencers out there now, and you know, as I say, it's a massively growing market. But the big problems for the brands is when things go wrong, and we've seen it in the past. Do you remember Kate Moss? She was dropped by what was it, Chanel, Burberry. H&M because she'd been allegedly seen taking drugs. Then you got Tiger Woods. He was, was dropped because he was, you know, allegedly cheating on his wife and all of these things. But the big one at the minute is totally fascinating. And this is the story of Kanye West, now known as Ye, who has her contract, who had an, this incredible contract with Adidas, which terminated last year 
but there's been loads of things going on since then. So should I give you a flavour of the money involved in this contract? Yeah, because this is way more than a million, let's be absolutely clear. Yeah, oh my God, this has made him a billionaire. So this contract started in 2013. So Kanye West and Adidas came together in 2013. And what was happening at that time was Adidas were way behind Nike. And so is Nike it, Is it had, Nike or Nike? I, I know. I knew you were going to... That's why I paused then, because I thought, I bet he says Nike. Well, I just want to know. What is, what is... What is... Come on, come on. I thought it was Nike, but I mean... I don't know. I've always said Nike. Um, tomatoes, tomatoes, whatever. So, yeah. So at this time... Adidas were way behind Nike on the trainer market. So Nike had something like 50% of the trainer market and Adidas only had 8%. And at that same time, Kanye was this mega star. You know, he, he produced loads of music for massive names in the industry. He was then doing his own music as well. He got engaged to Kim Kardashian. So, you know, his influence went way beyond just being a, in the music industry. So they got together with him and put together this enormous deal, which was the biggest one they'd ever given to a non-athlete. And the deal was for him to get 15 percent of the sales so the kind of royalties from it all and the impact was massive like you know you'll remember Robert Yeezy suddenly became this trainer everybody wanted so they collaborated to create did you ever buy a pair no but my family various family members thought that I had some influence just vaguely because you know I'm (laughs) working telly they were like you'll be able to get them Steph and I absolutely cannot get them I have no influence on that but you know I had a one of my uh, my brother-in-law actually he bought a pair of Yeezys one of the first ones and then kept them in the box and then sold them for shed loads more money afterwards so they became this real cult piece that everyone wanted they sold out within hours they won the shoe oscars the equivalent of in 2015 and they were making adidas billions of dollars you know over the years and it made Kanye West a billionaire too but then all the controversy was kicking off wasn't it Robert yeah I mean so this is this is the number of it. So he starts. Well, he doesn't. You know, it didn't come out of nowhere. But he makes a whole load of remarks that are widely seen as straightforwardly anti-Semitic. And you know, there's the famous DefCon remark about Jewish people. I mean, it was he came up with a load of stuff that was absolutely toxic. And you know, at that point, Adidas decided they got a part company with him. I mean. I should point out there is, in terms of history, a certain degree, I don't know if, if irony is the, quite the right word, in the sense that Adidas was actually set up by an individual, um, Adolf Dassler, who was a member of the Nazi party in the 1930s. Um, and it's actually a, another interesting historical fact. His brother, another member of the Nazi party, set up the rival Puma. So they did have a Nazi past. Anyway, the uh, it's, it's to state the obvious. You can't have a brand leader who is you know, associated with any form of racism or any form of anti-Semitism. So he had to go. But the cost to Adidas has been enormous. I mean, in terms of lost sales and profits, get, give us a summary. Yeah, so they terminated the contract kind of this time last year. It was, I think it was October last year. And from that, following that, they posted their first annual loss in a decade. Their share price plummeted as well. And it became a huge problem for Adidas, not least as well because they had this massive inventory of 
all of these uh, Yeezys that they could then couldn't sell because they just you know completely stopped selling them. That was said to be worth one point three billion dollars as well. That inventory and you know it, it really affected them. Then a new CEO came in, kind of spring of this year, and decided actually no, we are going to sell off this stock that we've got with the idea being some of the money will be donated to charities, particularly charities connected to the areas where he'd been the most controversial. So they started doing that. What we saw was consumers start snapping up all these trainers again, you know, even though Kanye was seen as really controversial, that didn't seem to put off people buying these Yeezy trainers again. And that helped Adidas again get back up there in terms of sales and profit. But there's still some left of this inventory. And I think, you know, that there's a question around whether they're still going to carry on because Kanye is still being incredibly controversial. And what's really interesting, Robert, is you say, you know, you, you, you were talking there about how when this all happened, Adidas couldn't work with Kanye anymore and they had to terminate the contract. But there's a brilliant investigation that's been done by a, a lady called Megan Tui at the New York Times. She is. She's, she, she's yeah. a very impressive journalist. Yeah. And she's done this whole investigation where she's talked to current and former people who worked at Adidas and also worked for Kanye. And her argument is that they actually knew he was controversial right from day one. So not long after he signed that first deal back in 2013, He'd invited execs and, you know, various creatives around to his really swanky apartment to talk about creativity. And he made them watch porn in that meeting. If that's not a red flag, I don't know what is. And then also, he used to have apparently these really explosive outbursts where he'd be, you know, really mean to staff. And then on one occasion, he, he wasn't happy with the designs they were creating. So he drew, allegedly drew a swastika on the shoe design, on the toe of the shoe design as a kind of, you know, stuff you guys. I mean, it got so bad for the staff there that they actually ended up having to have a special HR person assigned to just dealing with staff who were, you know, had complaints about Kanye. And they had to keep moving staff between jobs so that they wouldn't always have to deal with him on the front line. You know, Megan Tui describes it as the front line, as if, you know, you're going to war every time you're going to work with him. So all of these things happening already. And it, like I said, that they ended up having to put this moral clause into his contract. So he signed a contract with in 2013 that was going to take him up to 2017 in 2016 they put in this morals clause in his contract which meant obviously they could terminate the deal if he started doing any of these things he he had been doing but he was still doing them and adidas didn't enforce it in those years afterwards yeah but it's not surprising that they didn't enforce it for a period because you know when they announced the termination there was also a disclosure that they were going to lose more than a billion dollars of sales every year and half a billion of operating profit i mean this deal was off the charts valuable to them but the point is when you you know pin your reputation on that of shall we say quite a sort of volatile unpredictable individual you're taking a massive risk you're taking a massive risk. But I suppose their attitude was, that's the price of doing business with a creative genius. I have to say, pretty much every week we're on this podcast, I think to myself, gosh, I'm taking a risk working with such a creative genius. Anything could happen working with you, Steph. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, and I know that's not true. I know you're being sarcastic. No, 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 no. Um, should we have a look at questions then? And the creative genius of our listeners, you've been <laughs> sending them in. Totally right. So what's the first one we're going to kick off with? Yeah. yeah so on. this one's from Robert Beck. And he says, did eat out to help out actually help the economy? Okay. So this is a, an, an interesting and important question. And it's obviously it's in the news because this week we heard from Sir Patrick Valance, the former chief scientific advisor of the government, 
that when the Treasury, when Rishi Sunak as Chancellor was designing and then launching their help out to eat out scheme. And remember, this was a scheme that gave big subsidies to restaurants in the summer of 2020 to open. When they were designing and launching the scheme, they did not ask the advice of the scientists about what effect this would have on the spread of COVID. Right. So the, the scheme was set up because the hospitality industry was in dire straits because of COVID and they wanted to give it a boost. And I remember at the time when it was launched thinking, if I'm honest with you, this is completely nuts. Right. You know, we'd just been through lockdown. There were still social distancing restrictions on all of us. It was plainly all the scientists were clear that we had not defeated COVID, that it was going to come back. And therefore, we had to maintain, in a sense, good practices of not getting too close to people. And the problem with Eat About to Help Out was, you know, it was a signal to the nation that we should all be socialising again. Some of my mates who've got restaurants were actually really excited about this because they, you know, they did see this as a chance to make a bit of money. And I guess the assumption was, if the government is saying this, that must mean it is safe and it's all right. Now, look, there has been some academic research into whether or not EPAD to help out had a significant impact on the spread of the virus. And it's quite difficult to prove that it massively accelerated the virus over the summer. But then you've got to think about the corollary, right? We hadn't, through the lockdown, eliminated COVID altogether. And the thing about Eat Out to Help Out is by the time you got to September, the virus is increasing again. And you also have, and this is a different part of the story, you have a prime minister who refuses to implement the circuit-breaking lockdown that the scientists wanted. And again, there's evidence that Rishi Sunak was on the side of the Prime Minister. He was warning that if you did impose another lockdown at that point, it would be very economically damaging. And so at the end of the year is when you get these very severe lockdowns. But by that point, COVID is running riot again. And one of the things actually, which people forget, is although we've been focusing on the first lockdown, the majority of deaths were actually later in 2020 and into 2021. One. That was a really significant wave. That lockdown at the end of the year did an enormous amount of economic harm. And I think that the argument would be net of everything, eat out to help out, may well have done more damage than the help that it gave to the hospitality industry. Because there's an argument that said that if we'd been able to suppress the virus more in that August-September period, the subsequent way that the virus ran riot and the subsequent lockdowns would not have been as severe and that, and that those subsequent lockdowns obviously caused enormous economic damage. So, you know, net of everything, I think it is arguable that Eat Out to Help Out did quite a lot of harm. But, you know, this is a subtle and complex argument. Right, should we take another question then? All right, so now we've got a question from Mark Knight, which is why have so many cities and county councils gone bankrupt recently? And, you know, how many more are going to get into deep trouble? Yeah, I mean, God, they're having a really tough time, aren't they, local councils at the minute? And I was looking at some research on this, which suggests that a third of councils are at risk of going bankrupt in the next couple of years. And they don't go bankrupt like us, do they, like people or businesses? They do something called a Section 114. Without going into too much detail, it basically means when they can't balance their books, they have to halt all their spending and essentially they have to put an emergency budget 
together and whether that's with the you know central government getting involved is another part of it but the, the problem is is there are lots of councils on the brink of this as well as some massive ones that we've seen fall into it including the most recent which was Birmingham City Council you know this decision was made after they reckoned there was a gap of something like 87 million pounds between what they were bringing in and what they were spending and also on top of that they had a huge amount to pay out for the equal pay claims. And that's been one of the big hitters for them, hasn't it, Robert? So there are three things going on, which mean that councils are in dire straits. One was that during the austerity years of Cameron and Osborne, and then subsequently when public spending was under tight control, successive chancellors started by Osborne put enormous financial pressure on councils in order to save money and particularly to save money in a way that wasn't so visible. They massively squeezed the support that were given to local councils. And that meant the local councils were having to do more, particularly in the area of social care with less money. And we we know that when it comes to looking after the elderly and the vulnerable, the costs of that have gone up and up and up. And that was a massive burden on councils that all councils find incredibly difficult and children's services has been a real pressure talking to some of my friends in local government they're saying the demand now particularly in poor areas on children's services is off the scale and then equal pay legislation which is a very good thing has also caused massive problems for councils because loads of councils were not paying their female employees as much as they should have been relative to male employees so they are facing massive bills all over the country to compensate women who lost out over many, many years. You know, we are talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds of costs there. Yeah. And if you look at just Birmingham City Council alone, they reckon their estimate for these equal pay claims is between £650 million and £760 million in backdated pay claims. It's huge figures. And then the other thing that the government did is they gave more financial freedom to councils and councils, because they were so desperate for cash, took advantage of this by going into commercial property deals in many cases. But, you know, this won't surprise you. Quite a lot of councils didn't have the expertise and frankly invested their money unwisely and have got into very, very severe financial difficulties. And the sums of money that are being lost by councils are off the chart. So there are these, you know, there are these three big causes. And I'm afraid to say in terms of a sort of national scandal, we haven't seen the last council to go bust. And this is, you know, for whoever wins the next election, shoring up the finances of councils and putting them on a more sustainable footing. It's a huge priority. Yeah, it is. I think that brings us to the end of the show. And thank you so much, by the way, for for sending in all your questions because it really influences what we do. For example, Will be asking us about influences, <laughs> then led to a whole section this week. So, you know, do send them in, tell us what you think we should be talking about and we will try our hardest to make sure that we do actually cover it. So the email for that is restismoney at gmail.com or you can find us on our social media pages. Just search for The Rest Is Money and you'll find us. But yeah, busy old day. Time for a rest. <laughs> amazing day, amazing week. So much more to discuss next week. See you then. Bye-bye.